Well, would y'all pray with me? Almighty God, be with us this morning. Be with us as you have always been, are now, and will always be. Amen. So are any of y'all familiar with the phrase, we are what we repeatedly do? Okay, famously misattributed to Aristotle, this phrase is still a near-perfect distillation of his concept of virtue ethics. And uh, paired with the second half of the phrase, we are what we repeatedly do, excellence then is not an act, but a habit is most often seen in my own personal experience, not in grand treatises on moral philosophy, but on the social medias of people who are eager to let you know how well they're doing in this life. Uh, these are folks who want to make it known that they have fought and clawed and got all of every bit of that physical fitness or all the money and the trappings that come along with it, all the stuff on the power of their own ability. And for them, Success and excellence has become a habit. Now, just because I personally find that just the tiniest bit cringy and something I don't like does not mean that those are bad folk or that they're necessarily doing anything wrong. My purpose in sharing that quote and some of the places it shows up most often in my own experience is to demonstrate in some small way how distorted for the Christian virtue can get. We have spent the last few weeks, at some level or another, in the letter of the Philippians, right? And typically, when we're reading one of Paul's letters, we get to see a little bit of drama. Something has gone wrong in the community, and Paul is writing back to them to try and correct something out of love and a desire for reconciliation. But Philippians is just a little bit different. Yes, they had some of their own issues. We see that in our reading today, Euodia and Syntyche, two women about whom nothing but their names are known, are fighting about something, and Paul encourages them to find common cause and remember who they are to each other. But other than that, Paul is writing this letter out of an overflowing sense of joy, out of a real love for these people because he misses them and because he loves them. They don't have the same fear and lethargy that the Thessalonican churches had, or the wild factionalism and rampant immorality that beset the Corinthians. All told, the Philippian church was actually doing pretty well. Paul's writing to them to tell, them that he, to tell him that he misses them, he thinks the world of them, and to encourage them in the good work they've already been up to. Not a whole lot of correction, but a whole lot of exhortation. And that's where we're at this morning. Here at the end of the letter, Philippians 4, Paul is wrapping up and saying some of the most important things that he can put on paper for a people that he loves. And what does he tell them? He tells them to stand firm in the faith. He encourages them to remember who they are to one another and not to let the little things that come between them destroy the community that God has brought together. He tells them to rejoice, 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 and finally pursue the virtues. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable. If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That word excellence, if there is any excellence, that word can also be translated as 
virtuous or virtuousness. If there is any virtuousness, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing them. In the Zoom book club that's been meeting for the last few weeks on Tuesday nights, we've been talking a lot about virtues, clearly in my brain. That is something that is just always there now. Um, and it, we've talked about what some of them are, what makes a virtue a virtue, and how we practice virtuousness. And I promise you, I will grow as tired of saying the word virtue as you are of hearing it at this point. So bear with me. We've talked through the cardinal virtues, temperance, courage, justice, and prudence, and what the author of one of the books that we're reading calls the theological virtues, hope, faith, and love. We've struggled to define what a virtue is because there has been a difficulty in our modern age to agree upon a set moral standard, which truly is neither here nor there, as my own personal working definition of a virtue is simply a verb worth pursuing or a verb worth doing. The big idea about virtue ethics, the set of ethics first set down on paper by Aristotle, is that we do the right things because we want to become people who do the right things, or by doing the right things, we become people who do the right things. We are what we repeatedly do. We repeatedly act as people who have courage, and we become people who have courage. We continually act in faith toward a faithless world and we become faithful people. Over and over, we act in a loving way as we walk through this life and we become loving people. This is the whole concept of virtue ethics. And it's what Paul is handing us on a silver platter this morning, but with just the smallest of twists. Instead of seeing virtue for its own sake, a good deed as its own reward, Paul is telling us that if and when we practice this way of virtuous living, this way of living excellently in the world, pursuing a true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable way of walking through this life, we don't just end up as those kinds of people. Of course, we will end up that way. That's the whole thesis of virtue. But in addition to that, the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of Christ. Peace. This is the promise of God for his people today. Acting in a Christ-like way, pursuing the Christ-like virtues, pursuing the fruits of the Spirit of God, somehow, some way, brings us peace. And we know that. We feel it somewhere in our chest. We know it somewhere in our head that acting like this is true, because it is true, changes the way we approach the world. It changes us, who we are at a core level. It takes what is not natural and it makes it habitual. And it takes what is habitual and it makes it natural. And it takes what is natural and makes it fundamental to who we are. The God that died so that we might live did not go to the grave just to come back and make us better people or to give us some example to follow. He died and came back to give us the chance to become new people, fundamentally new, different people, to take dead people and bring us back to life, to make us new and to grant us the life eternal that is his alone to give. From Isaiah this morning, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Peace. 
abundant, overflowing, generous peace that alone is the Lord's. The peace that passes all understanding, the peace that makes no sense, the peace that isn't logical or rational but is somehow above all that, the peace that is somehow, some way, real. That peace that we instinctively and intuitively know when we've walked with the risen Christ. The Greek is irene for peace. It's not simply a lack of conflict or sort of Zen attitude when everything goes wrong. That's part of it, sure. But the closer definitional meaning here is something like a harmony that makes and keeps things safe and prosperous. Peace as a harmony that makes and keeps things safe and prosperous for all. A peace that makes life safe, safe and prosperous for every person living in the war zone that has become the Holy Land. A harmony that makes life safe and prosperous for every state fair goer. A peace that makes sure that everyone in East Fort Worth has enough to eat. Think about how that squares with our own internal definitions of peace. What peace should and does mean to us. I think hidden here at the end of Philippians, at the end of a list of virtues that will bring us to it, is the call for us to follow the God of peace, the God who made peace, to follow in making and keeping peace, a harmony that makes and keeps things safe and prosperous for all. Safe and prosperous for all. So, yes, sure, this is about money, or it can be about money. It is stewardship season, after all, and I think I'm contractually obligated to talk about it. And I did use the word prosperous not 10 seconds ago. But the reality of the situation is that this is about so much more than money, or time, or talent, or anything else. This is about the ways that we live our lives, pursuing virtues that help us become people that are true, that are honorable and just, that are pure, pleasing, commendable people, a people of peace. We have the opportunity given to us by God to become a people of peace, a people who make peace in a chaotic world that thrives on its lack. That is the call for every Christian in this passage. By living a life that lets our gentleness be known to everyone, by living a life of virtue, we join in the work of God already inaugurated work in shaping this world into something that it's not, but something it could be. A world of peace where, as Isaiah said, the Lord God will wipe away all the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people will be taken away from all the earth and it will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. This is our God. The God who would live and die as one of us to bring us back to himself and would rise from the grave in the promise of a new life, a new world for every one of us. This is our God. By becoming what we repeatedly do, pursuing a life of peace and a life of virtue, witnessing to a world of peace, one that is not yet, we make the claim that this is our God. By living a life that states unequivocally with our time, our talent, our treasure, our families, our work, our hobbies, our communities, our everything, that this is our God, we join in the work of that God, our God, in making all things new. Amen.